You got me that as a gift. I did. Congratulations on your acquittal last week. Thank you. On that you. important Cheers. case. Well Thank done. Thank you very much. You know, you had a period of time. You, you got a law degree in India. Yes. And, uh, and then you went to the United States and did your master's in the United States and worked with a criminal law firm. I did. That did a lot of work in the sexual assault area. And uh, as we all practice in that area, I think we do a few of those cases, right, Dee? Oh, just a few. Yeah, so we do a few of them. So we have, fortunately, a lot of viewers from the United States, the UK, and other jurisdictions, and they keep talking about, you know, loving to learn about the Canadian system and the Commonwealth system. So I thought it'd be interesting, um, and thank you for coming on for your first thank time. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> We'd like to have you on many more times. Absolutely. Um, to talk a little bit about some differences in the United States, also a little bit with India too, because they're a commonwealth originally. They are. The system is very similar. Right. Um, so I think it'd be good for us to talk a little bit about the differences and then really talk a little bit about what we have in, United, in Canada versus the United States and, and what we have to deal with. Absolutely. So India, US and Canada, they all three are common law jurisdictions. They come from the same... Uh, <sighs> <laughs> Substantively, law is pretty similar. Pr procedurally, they differ a lot. So, for example, in India, we don't necessarily have jury systems, but you have that in the United States, you have that in Canada as well. Yeah, and in the United States, they'll litigate everything in front of a jury. So that's one important thing. So even a very minor offense, like a, an impaired driving case, right. will be a jury trial. It's really rare in the United States to have what they call a bench trial, which is a judge alone trial. It is, absolutely. I mean, you also have to consider the fact that state, the judges in state courts, they're elected. So people, you know, normally do wish to have jury trials there because you want to be in front of a jury. It kind of depends because here in, in Canada, you do have the option of being before a judge or a jury, you decide depending on the cases, you don't have that liberty in India as such. So that is a major difference procedurally between them. Can I call timeout? Yeah. So you said something really important, state judges. Yeah. So can you explain a little bit about state judges mm -hmm. and being elected? It's interesting. It's a very, uh, so I remember back in the U.S. when we were doing, for example, bail hearings, right? Uh, you have, you are appearing before a state judge and there's something known as Getting bailed is something known as being out on, on a bond. State judges are elected, federal judges are appointed, and state judges, based on like, you know, they have their, uh, their these, these concepts that they're really tough on. For example, gun laws. So if you have, I remember doing a bail hearing, it was a youth. It was uh, in Georgia sometime in 2015, and we had this youth, he was in possession. That was not a fart, it was the leather, okay? <laughs> don't was, fart on camera. He was in possession of a gun, allegedly. <laughs> Thank you. Allegedly. But what happened was that some judges are so tough on, on gun crimes that this individual, no, remember, we're talking about a youth. The bond that he was allowed on was $1 million. And this is, you know, this is somebody who's not going to be able to make. Yeah, so it's, a, it's essentially detained. Bless you, honey. So, so let's just talk for one second. So a state judge will preside over what type of offenses? So leaving aside a release from custody when being charged, let's talk about trials for a moment. Mm -hmm. Will state judges deal with state offenses? 
And can you just explain jurisdiction versus federal and state in the United States? And again, anybody who's watching, if we slightly get it wrong, please forgive us. We're just trying to talk a little bit about it now because there's a point we want to make. Right. So it, it kind of depends. So the way U.S. works is that what is not reserved for the federal government is left for the states to decide. So criminal law is not necessarily like the United, like Canada. We don't have just one criminal code that we follow throughout the country. Every state is different. They have their right to uh, decide. They have their own statutes. They have their own statutes. With their, their own, own laws, which are similar to other jurisdictions. Exactly, yeah. But it's not necessarily homogeneous across the country. It's not. Diana? This is this is why I have so much trouble, because I have this nonprofit where I get contacted by people all across Canada, in yeah. the U.S., different countries. But the States is very difficult, because it's difficult for me to even learn... Uh, you know, because I can give people some idea of what to expect. I can't give legal advice, obviously, but um, but uh, because they're so different from state to state, I'm just like going, where, where even are you? And then each oh, state yeah. is like, it would be impossible yeah. for me to be able to figure out how to give any sort of education. And, and generally what I try to do is say, okay, well, this is probably about how long it'll take. This will be like, these are the steps you're going to have to, but... Pff, like yeah so it's important i don't to know say what to say it's the united to, states it's crazy state by state has jurisdiction over local state law yeah. so they will have their own statutes with respect to criminal offenses within that state which will include everything up from uh drinking and driving assaults domestic assaults sexual assaults homicides etc okay. if it crosses a border it becomes a federal Absolutely. jurisdiction matter like a perfect example is drug trafficking if it crosses over a border um or you put you know, campaign finance in the mail, and you send it over. They're 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 federal, federal jurisdiction. But in a state, you will if it's within the state, like a sexual assault case that we typically deal with, or domestic assault, um, it's going to be state prosecuted, and you'll be in front of a judge. And so your your first instance trial will be in front of a judge who is elected. Yes, I found that really weird when when I first encountered. I was looking into a case in Oklahoma. Let's talk about that for a moment. Yeah. No, go ahead. What were you saying? Like, I, I don't want to shut you down. It's just, it's such a foreign concept yeah. to us. It is. Uh, so I was helping with a, a false, well, a wrongful conviction case in Oklahoma. And as I got looking more and more into it, then I became aware that not just the judges are elected, which, you know, for us would be like, we have a very strong belief in independence and... Um, and um, Of the judiciary. The judiciary from the legislative branch. And so electing them almost becomes legislative. It's... But um, it's very dangerous because then they can make decisions based on if an election's coming up, right? That is what always is, a concern, yeah. Yeah. And, and then also the prosecutors are elected. And so then there's a concern because prosecutors, like there was, I remember there's a judge well, in the no, States. Well, hold on. The, the, the district attorney's elected. Yeah. yeah, yeah but so those the underneath attorney, the district yeah. attorney are all... Yeah. But the district attorney is like, you know, they, they make very important decisions about, you know, who to prosecute and how to prosecute. And, um, and the policies for their office. Yeah, and yeah, I think the independence is, you know, a really big concern when that's going on. I think yeah. the Canadian system is better. Can you talk about that from experience better. for a little bit? When you have judges and they are being elected, the issue is how are they going to decide a particular case? So let's talk about a gun, uh, sorry, a judge who has, who's deciding a gun case, okay, based on just the example that I gave. Now, if the elections are around, he is going to be tough on it. And he's not going or to, she. they're going to be tough on, you know, on the crime. So you, you do have the concern of, you know, are you really being in, impartial here? 
You know, are you really being uh, rational here? So you have that concern. You're not necessarily going to say it, but you do wonder. And uh, the fact that the judges are elected is, of course, a concern. So that's why the United States clings on so tightly, and I don't criticize them at all for this, to the concept of a jury trial. So the trial of your peers is extremely important, and you can have it for misdemeanor offenses. Yeah. So a misdemeanor offense is what we'd call similar to a summary conviction yeah. offense in Canada. Yeah. So it's the lesser offenses that are, are far, that attract far less of a penalty. So in the United States, you can have a trial on a drinking and driving offense, a, a simple assault offense, etc., which we don't have here in Canada. You're only entitled to judge alone. And that may be the check on having a judge who's publicly elected. I see that way. <laughs> yeah. But they still make, and this is interesting because you know, we've talked a lot about um, new rules of evidence in Canada and so on. And even in a jury trial, judges make important decisions about that affect the fairness of the trial. And some of those decisions are about the admissibility of evidence. Right. And so uh, th there's a couple of things that um, the, I've, because I know a few lawyers down in the States as well, um, they're of course outraged that we have these new laws where we have to turn over, essentially turn over all the defense evidence prior to trial. <laughs> but not only that, there's a thing, and you know a lot about this because you've done a lot of work in the area, but we have a thing called Brown and Dunn, which this one lawyer that I spoke to, he was just flabbergasted, I guess would be a good word for it, that, that we have to put to uh, a complainant, we have to put our, what our defense theory or what, what, our, what right. we expect our guy to testify to. We have to suggest all of those things. But did you want to explain Brown and Dunn a little bit? Yeah. So, yeah. And, you know, I, I, I've been in the United States and I've been part of cases in the U.S. just because of clients in Canada that had to go down to the U.S. So, so what Diane is talking about is Brown and Dunn is a case that says if you want to challenge a complainant or a witness for the prosecution on certain material points, you have to challenge them on those points. And that inevitably relies upon what your defense of your client is, especially if you're going to call your client to testify. So let's take a very basic example of stuff that we do. Um, so let's say it's a homicide and we think we're gonna be calling our client on a self-defense. You have to put to one of the main witnesses on the self-defense that what you saw was that the victim in that case, who's now deceased, had drew the weapon upon Mr. Such and Such and was about to shoot him, and Mr. Such and Such reached into his coat to defend himself. Or in a sexual assault case, um, what happened was that my client had approached you and you started kissing and you were touching him and you told him that you wanted to have intercourse and then after you had intercourse there was an argument that you had about x y and z and that's why you've made up this allegation so in other words we're putting to the witness what evidence our client is anticipated to say at trial to give the witness a fair opportunity or complainant to explain themselves it's called a brown and dunn in canada which is a case to either it, agree or to deny to deny because the idea is that you don't want to ambush the witness you want to give them a chance to explain so mm -hmm. you suggest to them right and in the United States, you're not required to go through that same rigor right. to put the case to a witness. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not always the way good criminal lawyers in the United States will conduct a cross-examination because good criminal lawyers in the United States will do that in any event because they need to get in front of the jury 
why the witness is not credible. And that is often tied to the defense theory that you have, whether you're going to call your client or not. So this really is tied into the intricacies of an effective cross. But we have the rule and they don't in the United States. And it was interesting because he was like, he was outraged that we had to go through that process. But then when I mentioned that to you, you're just like, why wouldn't you? And I was just like, yeah, it's, it's really interesting how you can look at cases so differently and embrace rules, just like we've embraced the new rules of evidence. Not farted again. I know. Yeah, like. <laughs> you gotta fix that chair. Yeah, I, I, I either need squeak some or. In there. Yeah, so. You know, cross-examination is an art and you, in order to be effective at cross-examination, there has to be a coherent theory to your defense. Mm -hmm. And it has to be put to the witnesses and to the complainant. And to be effective, there has to be a reason for asking the questions. And, and I don't know another way to say it, but you've got to put that theory through to the witness. I can't imagine that if I traversed the United States to conduct a trial, I would be any different. Mm -hmm. You know, And I've had the benefit of knowing some very talented U.S. criminal lawyers where we've had cases together and they did similar things. Mm -hmm. I like the idea, however, that you're not compelled right. by law right. to do that because there may be a tactical reason. And in Canada, if you don't comply to that, there can be the argument made by the prosecution that there should be a diminished value to the cross-examination and hence the right. witness's evidence, your own witness's yeah, evidence, because you did not put that to the complainant or the witness for the prosecution. That, that is an issue. I, I, and, and I have to say, I err on the side of the United States to say it shouldn't be ground in stone. And again, the case law in Canada is quite varied. You don't have to put everything, but you have to put the meat to them. Right. No, that happens because I, I remember in one of my trials and I made so many suggestions because I just had to get my client's story out there that, you know, uh, there was a point in time when I was told that, you know, by the Crown that, you know, this was not put to the complainant, but the meat of the argument has already been put. So right. I, I know I do not have to put each and everything, but Correct. you know where I'm going with this. The judge knows where I'm going with this. Now the complainant knows as well where I'm going with this. So, yeah, it is. I feel it's a frustrating um process and I, I it kind of comes down to your strategy because sometimes i would like to ambush if i had to i mean in the us you can do that because here's the difference so i know um for example we talk about talk about 276 278 applications here you have to disclose you know everything that you have in your possession in the us especially in i'll talk about georgia because i have experience there what happens is that if you are in possession of something and if you're trying to use that in trial like what Let's say if I have any evidence, be it anything, text message or like, you know, cell phone, whatever it may be, uh, I have to disclose as long as I'm doing it during the chief. If I'm going to be using it in chief, I have to disclose. But if I'm trying to use them in my cross-examination, I don't really have to disclose them. For example, cell phone records. If, let's say, the complainant says, yeah, I, you know, I, I didn't call your client at my so-and-so <laughs> date. I didn't call him. Well, you know, I am in possession, somehow I'm in possession of cell phone records. And you know, these uh, cell phone records I'm going to be showing to you, even just to refresh your memory, <laughs> you made this call. Well, I'm not going to necessarily get an objection that I got them, where the hell did I even get these messages from, or you know, or these cell phone records from. So the, 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 the rule, the hard rule that you have to disclose your materials in Canada is not the same in the US, at least in Georgia. Quick question, quiz. 
is there any jurisdictions in the United States where you have to have reciprocal disclosure? Could be. Palm trees. <laughs> Out west. Florida. Schwarzenegger used to be governor. <laughs> California. 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 <laughs> so there are rules in the United States in some jurisdictions like California where you have to have reciprocal disclosure. Yeah. Again, it comes down to the states, right? The states decide the rules. So Insane. Yeah. You have the federal rules of evidence, but you also have state-specific rules. So that's why they defer. But let's, let's talk about this. So in sex assault cases, when we have to bring an application to talk about other sexual activity and or disclose any type of messages or pictures or communications in our possession that we want to cross-examine on, we, there is not in existence in the United States the same hard, fast rule that we have here that we have to bring a motion, vet it through a judge, get approval that it's admissible and not offending myths. Well, they do have rape shield law that you're yeah, not yeah. you're not trying to you know harass the complainant with whatever you're trying to do, but there there's no such rule as the two seventy six and two seventy. Yeah, the yeah. rape shield law, which we've had here for a long period of time, is absolutely justified and correct, and okay. they have it in the United States as well. That it's not because the somebody, core of it, the core, the of, core it. of it, yeah. because you had sex before does not necessarily mean you would have consented yeah. Yeah. or you're less believable. Like that's just common yeah. sense, and that that that's absolutely accurate. But, but we are now operating on 7,000 myths. <laughs> or as we'll get to in another episode, what annoying. myths some, some judges invented. Right. I know, you know that's the problem. They, of keep, Canada. they keep coming up with new things that are allegedly myths. Yeah, like you're not guilty. But leaving that aside, um, there is not the same hard and fast rules with respect to vetting this before a judge. Is, right. is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Um, at least in terms of Georgia that I know of, uh, because of my experience and New York State which I'm quite well aware of and New York there is no such rule that you and Florida you which show, I did a case in. you know what you are in possession again the rule not just show it's not just show we have to vet it and ask for permission can to I show do this? that it's can relevant I do this? Can I do to that? show can that I it's relevant yeah. there has to be yeah. a very detailed yeah. application Though essentially that level disclosing of detailed application, case. yeah in my in, as far as I know it does not exist I would imagine if it was suggested in the United States in any of these jurisdictions that we have to disclose our defense to admit f***ing messages between the complainant and the accused in the sex assault case, 90% of the lawyers in the United States would have a f***ing coronary. Yeah. For some of this stuff, yeah. Yeah. They'd be like, are you Especially kidding Especially now, because now we have to disclose stuff even if it's the subject matter of the charge. So, We've talked about this before, but can you explain that? So that everybody gets that again. So even like 276 was designed to be quite tough in order to um, you know prevent all sorts of mischief. And like, as you said, most of that legislation is right outside of the... Absolutely legitimate. Yeah. The new myths that are being created. But it was exempt from that. If, if the subject matter of the charge is the actual moment of the allegation, like the, the events of the allegation that constitute the alleged crime... So if it was related directly to that charge and it wasn't something that happened prior or something that happened after, it would absolutely be deemed relevant because it's and the subject matter of the charge. But now with the new legislation, if you have it in the form of a document, a text message, a photograph, a video, anything that takes the form of some sort of a, a document or content in your possession, it doesn't matter if it's the subject matter or the charge. It goes directly to what it is you're accused of you still have to ask for permission to use it. Right. So the Supreme Court of Canada and JJ, which we've been over a few times on podcast, have said that if, if you have a document 
or record, which includes a message, some form of communication, including a recording, etc. An actual Even, video of the sexual or act. Or video that you're of the actual yeah. act, which is the subject matter of the charge. So the actual allegation that has to be disclosed in an application and then subject to an analysis at the court to determine whether it is relevant and admissible. So that exception no longer exists here. And But I know like I, I have talked to people about some cases in the States where they were denied the ability to use emails and so on in their case because they were alleged to be engaging in some sort of a rape myth. So I know in the States they have similar concerns, but their legislation is not quite it's more so lax. strict. Yeah. yeah, so let's talk about that for a moment. So there are instances in the United States where judges can exclude prejudicial evidence. Yeah. And they can exclude it on the basis that it's engaging in myth-based reasoning right. or is not relevant. So it could be myth-based yeah. and it's not relevant or not relevant for other reasons. So the judges have that inherent discretion in the United States to do that. And that can become part of a hearing that we call a voir dire in the same United States. They call it voir dire. No, that's a difference. What do you call it? Voir dire? No, a voir it's, dire? that's a difference. So this, I had to, I had to deal with this voir concept dire? of voir dire. It's, I know, what do they call it in the United States? It depends on like where you are. Like if you're up north, the way you pronounce it is different. But I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, so you have a hearing about whether the evidence is admissible. Right. So, and so then you, that's you have that argument with the judge. But, but what, what, what voir dire is basically in the U.S. is called jury selection. It's not what it is here. But that's when, when I when I was here and practicing in Canada, I was like, yeah, I forgot what they call these these <laughs> evidentiary hearings. But but they have evidentiary hearings. We can, we can have a voir dire right, where we call yeah. evidence. But they have evidentiary hearings where they'll talk about what's admissible. And what judges do have the discretion, state to state, yeah. as to what can be admitted, and they can exclude evidence based on myth based reasoning or other or other reasons. Yeah. So it does happen. But all of this stuff, I mean, it sounds so technical, but it's so important because you're going into trial. And if you if you aren't allowed to bring your evidence with you, you can end up like having your hands behind your back or Let me ask you a know. question and this is interesting because again you have experience with the United States. What's better? So here now we have this very um uh very rigid approach. Um we have fairly good guidance now from the courts, the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court of Canada with respect to admissibility of other sexual history evidence and records. What's better? Is it better to have this very rigorous process we have in Canada or on an ad hoc sort of basis in the United States where you may be left up to the whim of a judge depending upon the case where there isn't the same clear-cut rigor? There is case law, but you may wind up in a case facing a judge regardless of whatever the case law is. Just look, no, I'm not well, here's admitting the thing. It. Here's the thing. If you're in, in front of a judge alone, which is more likely to happen in Canada, um, the judge knows what evidence they've excluded for whatever reasons they decide, but they've seen it. Yeah. Whereas with a jury, and that's more likely to happen in the States, if evidence is excluded prior to trial, the jury doesn't know what they don't know. Mm -hmm. they, don't, they have no idea that they're not permitted it's to not think about something or whatever. They just have no idea that evidence exists yeah. in the so first I, place. I'm just... I'm just positing the question because you know typically these will be jury trials in the United States and we have been lamenting for a while now about this process here and I still agree with the um, dissent in, in JJ where I think this is unconstitutional legislation but regardless our job is to the know the law for wrongful convictions is what the dissent <coughs> said excuse me yeah. 
a roadmap for wrongful convictions. Well, that's what they said. And, and in I, the dissent from the Supreme Court. And I agree. But now knowing what the playing field is, just from experience, I'm much more comfortable now with the way it's rolling out. And on a, on a case-by-case basis, I would be a little bit more concerned about having excluded from a jury just because of a judge's perceptions than what would be now a fairly coherent, you know, legislative structure and case law structure. Like just, again, we were talking, you have, you have a state case in the United States, and I may be wrong about this, and viewers can pipe in. But you get a judge who's up for election, and sex assault is one of those things in the United States that's a bad thing. I mean, it's a bad thing here too, but you know, you got, you're up for election, so you want to protect complainants, and you've got a complainant, maybe some similar act evidence, and so you're going to carefully cull the defense ability to call and cross-examine on certain evidence. Dangerous. Are dangerous, dangerous, no? Yeah. One thing that I, one thing that I would and does anybody win on trial in the United States? Really? Sorry. If, if there's a Do problem with the trial, <laughs> of course they win. Do they? <laughs> of course we win. One thing they, I, I got to say: Canada is far superior. Um, is appeals process. It's so frustrating watching appeals happen in the states because there's so many different levels, and you can win on an appeal, and then there's a Supreme there's like, Court in each It goes and back state, and forth so. and back and well, forth. Well, there's the uh, circuit courts. The, like, the circuit courts are federal courts. The state Supreme Courts are different. The yeah. appeals in the states. To I me need to are drink. Just, like to two, three that. states are gonna be are, are gonna make one circuit. Like the eleventh circuit would be Florida, Georgia. But here's Texas. one thing. Here's one thing. I absolutely think the United States is is one hundred percent better in when it comes to appeals. <laughs> that once you're acquitted, it's it's final. <laughs> That's yeah, yeah. There is no there is no appeal. There's finality from the other side. Yeah. of an acquittal by a jury. And the individual you does not have to go through the process again. You cannot appeal that. We have, we have a fairly narrow ground for the Crown to appeal an acquittal by a jury or an acquittal by a judge in Canada. Yeah. That said, you can appeal it. In the United States, that's unassailable. Right. Yeah. And the reality is, is you could go to trial, be acquitted. Crown could win an appeal. Our prosecutors could win an appeal. And then they can appeal. You go back to trial, and then you get acquitted again. And they could... They could keep, how many times do they get to appeal? Because well, they could, technically. We're going to talk in another episode about a case that where there was an acquittal at trial, went to an appeal, the judge wrongly um, overturned the acquittal and <laughs> ordered it back for trial, and it went to the Court of Appeal now, and it's an acquittal again, and it just goes to show you the incredible changes and machinations that happen in Canada. I think some finality, when you, when you decide, when you've determined that a jury, and I believe a lot in this, that a, a jury of your peers has decided on the evidence that was deemed admissible, not guilty. That's the end of it. That's as but far as the state should There was reach. a case in Alberta where the the person was acquitted. There was a, it became a high-profile case because there was a whole bunch of media around that particular case. It went back to retrial. He was acquitted again. And, and the prosecutor said that they were considering appealing it again. So that could have happened. And I remember one of... Uh, our best uh, court journalist, who's unfortunately passed away, Christy, Christy Blatchford, said, oh, yeah, she was great. how many kicks at the can do they get? <laughs> yeah. And the truth is, they could have. They could have tried to appeal can it we, again. Can we talk yeah. about something that um, you may have experienced in the United States? 
So I find it always very interesting in, in a case in the United States where it's like semi-high profile mm-hmm. and um, <laughs> they're doing the investigation and there's an arrest and the case is like literally litigated in the media. Oh, yeah, that happens. Like, like, like everything. You know, and, and so there was that murder of, I forgot which state it is, and it's horrific for university students. And Oh, wait, this and it, recently happened. One, one person walked in. Is that Arizona? And so, and so, you know, they've arrested somebody, and the investigation into the arrest uh, was impeccable. I mean, I, mean, I, I mean, just following it on the media and how it was laid out with the warrants and everything else. Right. I mean, really, you know, high-end, sophisticated police work. That said, I don't know if it's absolutely necessary to release all that information prior to a trial um, because you Where need you to protect you need to protect the integrity of a trial. Like yeah. like that's extremely I, I find that just troubling. And you know what's troubling? Although more? from as as just an observer, I was like, Well, wow, <laughs> that was great work. Look at they had warrants and this and right. that and they got they triangulated right. cell phones and they were able to get all sorts of like car was pulled over hap, just by happenstance by a police officer. They had video cam. Like it was fucking amazing. Right. But I don't think anybody should know that until the case has gone before a jury. Because it's concerning for if, if think of it, of it in this way. So you have it's it's all over the news. Everybody's watching. It's just not like in one city or one state. The whole country is watching. Yeah. Where do you change the venue? <laughs> You know, everybody's watching it and you're going to draw, you know, uh, the, these jurors from who, who are watching the same news or potentially have already seen it. Sometimes if you if you have concerns that maybe, you know, it's it's tainted, maybe I do not want to be in this jurisdiction, maybe you want to apply for a change of venue. Where do you go? Everybody no, and, 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 you know, if, you, you know, your chances in the United States, would, I mean, you, would you, would you get defense lawyers speaking to media. You, you maybe get a press release. It's, it's like, yeah. we don't do that in Canada. Yeah. And, and it's very difficult. And that's why I like the Canadian process that there's an arrest, maybe there's a press release, and that's it. You don't hear anything until the matter has been dealt with. But sadly, that's not the truth, right? So, I mean, it happens. And also, they, they want to publicize everything in the name of public interest that something like well, this has happened. Let, let, let's, I, I just, I love this topic. So, let's just talk about it for another minute. So, in the United States, um, cameras are allowed in the courtrooms. Right. Now, one state is extremely restrictive about cameras in the courtroom uh, to the point that cameras generally are not allowed uh, unless an exceptional circumstance is allowed by a judge. What state is that? Raise your hand if you know. I do not know. <laughs> New York. In, really? I don't know. New York either. State. They're very regressive in, in New York, according to U.S. media, about allowing cameras into the courtroom. Now, I happen to know this, um, and it's just rearing its head now because somebody notable has been accused of a number of offenses in the United States and had to appear before uh, a court in, the United, in, in New York State and be arraigned on charges. And there's a big debate as to whether cameras will be allowed in the courtroom, what that means for transparency. But New York State does not typically allow cameras in the courtroom. Now, of course, in Canada, we don't allow it. Except for one place, the Supreme Court. Supreme Court, because that's the ultimate end of of a case. That's the appeal. We've had it in the Ontario Court of Appeal on a few occasions where there was something momentous about exonerating somebody who was wrongfully accused. James Lockyer had been a member 
uh, on, on, on a team for many of these wrongful convictions. These were typically murders with flawed uh, uh, identification evidence and DNA exonerated them. But we don't allow cameras in the courtroom. And I think that's the right decision. Yeah. But coming from the United States, what do you say? I, now that you've trans, you know, have come over here, transferred I, over to I, the Canadian jurisdiction. I'll, I'll be honest. So I prefer not having the cameras in the courtroom. Why? Because, you know, it's not just the privacy interest of the complainant, it's also the privacy interest of the accused. Yes. You know, because at the end of the day, you are innocent until proven guilty. You should not be crucified while you're going through the process. If you what are, about the honesty of witnesses? Yeah, I mean, yeah, people are watching. What about the jury? Yeah, that's that that as well. You're on camera as a jury across a country. I mean, you know, they say will that, that force you to make a decision well, one way or the other? This is an interesting difference between Canada and the States, too, is that jury members can, can speak about their deliberation process down in the States, whereas in Canada, you're barred from permitting, um, telling anybody, especially media, about how it is you came to your verdict. Which I absolutely agree with. I think it's very important to protect a jury. I think it's very important for juries not to be interviewed because their deliberations have to be free from influence and free from public scrutiny. The minute you got the public going, they're f***ing idiots for saying that one way or the other. That's when you're going to get perverse verdicts. I think cameras in a courtroom can lead to perverse verdicts because any number of things can happen during the course of a trial where you have cameras that may either inhibit a witness from wanting to testify or a complainant in a very sensitive case. It may also cause them to exaggerate or showboat. Of course, if we were to allow cameras in Canada, I had put forward the idea because we wear robes in Canada. So in Canada, like the British system, we have to wear robes. So we have like a we vest. We just don't have the hair. We have a vest that I can't really fit into anymore and, and tabs and in robes. I was thinking that what we should do is have like Nike, Adidas, Reebok, sponsor lawyers. We either the swish or the thing on it. We can get cars. We, we could do a whole thing. Yeah. No? Stupid idea? Okay, I'm just being silly. But I really do think cameras not being in a courtroom, I think that enhances the truth-seeking uh, process. process. Yeah. Um, I don't think that level of transparency enhances it. No. But I, I will say, like I've seen a couple of cases in the States where because jury members were permitted to speak to the media, that grounds of appeal became available because of things that the jury member said to the media about how how much weight they put on something or what caused them to be swayed or they find out that there was some sort of influence from an outside source so <clears throat> or they lied about they're, they're, <laughs> so i have seen cases where something that a jury member said to to the media ended up becoming or said on social media ended up becoming a grounds of appeal right i, I think that happened recently in a case as well I, I forget which one it was but the juror was wearing a t-shirt um, and he, he lied about uh, his, you know, uh, things that he, he, he th thinks about. Affiliations. Or affiliations yeah. or something that he's uh, he's vocal about. I think he lied about it, but there was a picture of him wearing a T-shirt about the, the ideology that he... he Denied. Yeah. yeah. So, I, well, and I think... So, so, so that leads me to one more. Are we running along? And I, I love this topic. And I think it happened in this one. What's her name? Um, uh, this lady in California, she was a uh, really young billionaire... Uh, they, they made a documentary about her, uh, Elizabeth. She made this, uh, I, I forget her name, but it recently happened. It's a really, it'll come to me and I'll say it. Well, let me just talk about this because you, you, you said something about the ideology of a juror. Yeah. 
Right. Well, what do they get to do about juries in the United States and selection that we don't get to do here? Oh, we get to ask questions. We get to ask oh, a lot just of tell me questions. About that, you were there. I remember preparing just so tell me. I'm so many interested. questions. You get to ask questions? That's so oh cool. My God. I have seen jury selection. You get to know what's in their head, maybe? It happened. I remember this uh, This one. They, we were doing a murder case, and, and the lawyer I was working with, she took the whole day to do her jury selection. She was so precise in her questions. You could tell some people were getting irritated. But she was asking each and every question that she had. I prepared like uh, this fat, you know, I had over like 100, 150 questions she could ask and she was choosing whatever she wanted to ask. But you don't have that that liberty and the luxury in Canada to do that. So, but what are you asking questions about? Well, you can ask them, for example, you know, do you have uh, what do, do you have a car? Like, do you have, you know, these these stickers on your car, for example, because that kind of gives me an idea about your ideology or what you're affiliated with. Do you have stickers on your car? What kind of stickers, you know, what organization do they belong to if, you, if you're doing? So you're, you want to look at ideological perspectives, right. religious uh, uh, right. allegiance. Yeah. Um, belief structures. Yeah, have you know we're doing. We don't want to tell them what case we're they're, they're going to walk into. But you know, have you had uh, issues? You know, anybody in your family has dealt with has had a criminal, you know, um, a violent death or a violent, you know, uh, interaction or something with the law. And you know, if somebody says, yeah, you know, I've had a bad interaction with the law or. Uh, my my husband died or my my father died because of you know somebody doing uh, because of a robbery for example yeah you they're gonna be not necessarily impartial so we yeah. can you know judges try and screen certain things like this out right. with their instructions or their questions that they pose to a jury that they don't directly ask but lawyers in the United States are allowed to ask uh, a, a reasonable amount of questions right. of a potential juror yeah. to tease out ideological issues, religious issues, right. bias. and Without and, giving a reason as to why I'm striking them. Right. <clears throat> so we don't have that challenge for cause right. here in Canada. Preemptory challenges. Yeah. yeah, they're gone. I know. I heard. <laughs> thank you, Justin. Thank you. But you know, I'm going to thank you for something else in the next podcast, Justin. But it kind of depends on the state again, because the states make these rules. And for example, uh, you know, the preemptory challenges you get, for example, in, in Georgia, you would get six. In Minnesota, you would get 10, depending on whether it's a misdemeanor or a felony case. So the amount of preemptory challenges you get depends on the state and what kind of offense you're dealing with. But you get to ask questions. 100%. That's so interesting. And and and, and the one thing I remember <laughs> out of this jury selection, I had the privilege of meeting someone whose job is to just sit in, in during the trial and just look at the jurors just read their face jury selection experts they're just they're consultants. they tend to be psycho jury consultants yeah. they tend to be psychologists it blew my mind i had i i had no idea and i met this individual as a student and i was like you do this for a living i didn't even know you existed yeah so i had a case a conspiracy to commit murder where the late eddie greenspan was counsel for a person I represented the other one on this conspiracy it was a very high-profile case and Eddie had flown up from the United States a expert on jury selection mm -hmm. and of course in Canada we could ask nothing right. but he, he was trying to assess from at least the list that we had and of course we could know occupations what might be an appropriate jury depending upon occupation and, and, right. and other things and so they have a real science for it in the United States. And whether you believe in it or not, yeah. um, I, I'm a firm belief that in Canada, with the right instructions, um, juries take their job very seriously and try and transcend their biases. Right. But it's an incredibly interesting process in the United States just to how much 
um, emphasis is placed on this analysis. And we don't have it here. There's so much more. We didn't even talk about India because there's... You don't have the jury. I mean, yeah, we don't. We we have the bench system, and sometimes you do have more than one judge, and you know, the more than one judge depending on, you know, specialization. That you work for have. a very high profile lawyer in extremely, India. yeah. So there are two, three: the former law minister Ramjit Malani. Then we have Satish Manishinde. My Indian, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, folks would know, but yeah, they're they're high profile lawyers working on really big cases in India, so. But you know, it's interesting. There, there is a lot of uh, feedback that we get because we have viewers from there about a lot of the inequity in the justice system in India. Yeah. And I think one thread that maybe we'll just close on is that many jurisdictions are finding the lack of investment in the defense system and in fairness. And we're seeing in Canada, you know, underfunding and chronic underfunding of legal aid. Uh, we see that in the UK, we yeah, see that in India yeah. and the United States. They have a better federal public defender system, which is generally well-funded. Right. The state uh, public defender system is less well-funded, but they're dedicated people. But there is this chronic um, deficit um, for those who need to rely upon public defenders or a legal aid system. Right. And we can visit that in a later time, but that's something that we're seeing growing across multiple jurisdictions, which is which is bad and, yeah. and, and sad for our justice Well, we've system. known for a long time that it's going to go into a crisis state in terms of underfunding. <clears throat> Nothing's we're, we're at it. We've been at like it for we, a long We've time. mentioned before in the UK they went on strike because their, their legal aid system was so poorly funded. Alberta was on strike yeah. recently. We were yeah. supporting Alberta lawyers because they were, they were right at the strike section because they were just so incredibly underfunded. And these lawyers aren't able to make a living defending people who need defenses. And yeah. they need to be defended. All right, well, let's click. That's something that UV. Thank you for having me. My Yuvika, glass is empty, but thank, thank you, you for joining us. <laughs> thank Again, you. Congratulations on the win. Will you, yeah. you want to come back for another podcast on some stuff? Yes, like, if you'll have just to. Just absolutely. You're thank you're you very just much. up the office over there. Come on down. I'll just walk downstairs. And in the meantime, everybody remember to like, subscribe, hit notifications, share. leave comments, share, send us messages. We love it all. Thank you very much. Good night. Thank happy. You. Uh, happy, happy long, long weekend. weekend. Yeah. <laughs>